In this episode, I'm joined by David Curtis, a lama in the Shangpakagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and founder of the Tibetan Language Institute. In this interview, David shares his passion for the Tibetan language and insights gained from his 27-year career teaching Tibetan to thousands of students. We learn about David's unique approach to language learning, the characteristics of the Tibetan language that David loves, and how different approaches to grammar can open up layers of meaning at different points in a student's journey. David also reveals how to approach language learning as a spiritual practice and shares stories of his interactions with prominent gurus and translators. So without further ado, Lama David Curtis. Lama David Curtis, welcome back to the podcast. I'm really delighted to be back again, Steve. Thanks for having me back. The last episodes we've recorded have followed you throughout your life, encountering uh, Tibetan Buddhism, having all kinds of adventures, uh, three-year retreats, uh, psychedelic uh, spiritual awakenings and, and encounters with great lamas and eventually in fact through all of that and I really it's really quite an adventure I suggest uh, people I recommend people check out those two episodes the previous episodes with uh, with David you eventually returned to the states and began teaching uh, Buddhism but also what I think you're probably most widely known for is your work teaching Tibetan language something you've done for decades, teaching English speakers Tibetan language, predominantly focused on the written form, uh, or as it's sometimes called classical Tibetan. In fact, uh, you recently were generously uh, sent this uh, through one of the readers from your updated uh, library. And Diane, your uh, partner was explaining to me that you're launching your, you're relaunching your site, Total Makeover, and you've revamped all of your educational materials, instructional materials that are on the site. And it does look like a signif quite a significant revamping. So I, I wanted in this interview to talk to you a bit about your experience teaching Tibetan over all these decades. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the updates to the materials that you've been producing and um, the, the uh, revamped site? Mm -hmm. Well, um... So I began teaching Tibetan, I guess it was 27 years ago now. And I originally thought that I would just teach for, um, I don't know, a year or two. And then um, I thought if I taught other people, I would learn Tibetan better myself. And then I would go back into uh, a long retreat. And uh, instead, I've just been, I've stayed in America and, and been teaching Tibetan the whole time. So one of the things that we, well, back then, especially, this would have been the early 90s when, and, and before, when I first started looking at Tibetan, it was the early 80s, I guess, um, myself, inquiring into learning. The, a lot of the grammars and dictionaries were actually written by um, Christian missionaries for each other, for other missionaries. And, and their idea was to convert the Tibetans, you know, to uh, Christianity. And so they made a lot of assumptions in, and uh, about who learners might be, you know, using those grammar books. And um, so I, I found them inadequate, you know, the, uh, the, especially the grammar books for, for modern people, most modern people. And so lately I've been talking about what I do as teaching 
people's Tibetan, you know, for, um, kind of uh, Tibetan for the rest of us. And the idea was that um, it can be made accessible and doable. When we first look at it, most people are uh, kind of astounded and, and think that they, they could never learn that. Um, but um, Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And so over the 27 years of teaching, I've taught many different types of people with many different levels of education. Um, they all uh, spoke English, but not necessarily as a native language even. And so I've had to explain it um, and teach it um, over and over again, hundreds of times actually. And I keep trying to make that better, you know, and make it clearer and easier for, for people to learn. So in the beginning, my friend, uh, Sarah Harding, who had actually done a three-year retreat under Kala Rinpoche also in the same center, but previous to me, um, she had a correspondence course on Tibetan and it's six lessons and it combines the classical Tibetan with the colloquial Tibetan. And so she very kindly and graciously let me use her course. And that's what I taught first. But from the very beginning, I was making my own handouts to clarify things. And, um, and so then those kind of grew into a manual. And so they've been evolving. And, and so then in 97, I put out a few different manuals. And then I've been using those ever since to teach, but supplemented by numerous handouts. And finally, just in the last couple of years, we're redoing all those. So I've learned a lot in teaching over those years about how to teach. I've learned much more about Tibetan myself. And so it's been kind of an ongoing growth and refinement of the materials that I use. And uh, we developed, for instance, I think there's still the only uh, flashcards out there, you know, and we developed CDs and DVDs, and then these little manuals like the one that you held up. So we have quite a series of those now. And, uh, and then I would teach them and reteach them and constantly refine them to try to make them better. And so now we're, um, we're really happy with the form that they're reaching. So we have a level one, a level two, and a level three manual, and then a series of readers. And so our refinement of those has come at the same time that we're redoing the website, as you mentioned. So the website's been really archaic. We kind of miss the digital revolution, you know, living in, in the mountains of Montana and then going to France uh, for six years and, and doing retreat and living at a Dharma center, kind of removed from society. And that was all happening in the mid 80s to the early 90s. Um, but, and then lots of people over the years have helped us with different things. Uh, I still remember when two of my students, they both worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, in LA area. And they, they came to our apartment one evening after work and said, we've got something new that you have, have to put on your computer. And well, what is it? It's called email. You know? <laughs> so lots of people helped us with things. And, and now some lovely people are, are working with us and Deanna's working very closely with them to modernize the website as well. So those two things are kind of happening coterminously. But those early grammars written by the missionaries, those people, almost all of them 
were fluent in Greek and Latin and French and German and a few other languages. And, and one of my favorite lines in one of those old grammars was, this presents no difficulty whatsoever. It's just like the Persian. You know, and so I don't think we can make that assumption of the people that I encounter and teach in the Dharma today, uh, they don't necessarily know Persian. A couple of them do, but, but not very many. Yeah, I think there are very few schools these days in English-speaking countries, except certain private schools that have that sort of an education, which actually you benefited from. Uh, you fell in love with Greek, uh, you fell in love with Latin, these classical languages. And that's something I'd like to ask you a bit about. So you sort of, I think, bridge that uh, in an interesting way. But increasingly, it's the case, I think, that even educated people of today lack education in the classical languages of Greek and, and Latin and so on. So I'm curious then, what's your approach? You mentioned uh, complexity and simplifying and streamlining the way in which you communicate, presumably the grammar, the structure of the language, the vocabulary, etc. How would you characterize your approach? What do you do differently? What methods or strategies have you hit upon in all of your experience teaching the Tibetan language? Well, I think that question takes me back to the beginning why I wound up teaching in the first place. And that actually came about as a result of um, doing a, a three-year meditation retreat. So it came out of my love for an immersion in the Dharma. And when, it, as I approached the end of the three-year retreat, I don't know if it first came to, I think it first came to me in a dream but I'm not 100% sure, but it could have been, we spent a lot of time meditating and just by ourselves, but it came to me that I should teach Tibetan when I left retreat. Like everyone's going to do something, what are you going to do? And some people, as soon as the retreat's over, they just go immediately back to ordinary life as quickly as they can. And other people don't wanna leave the retreat and there's a whole spectrum and, and uh, and one just starts to wonder, you know, this has been an amazing voyage, it's coming to the end, and what next? And that thought just popped into my mind, and, and then it happened repeatedly. And so I had this internal dialogue with myself for quite some time, that, and this urge would come up, or this idea that I should teach Tibetan, and then I would say that, well, I don't know Tibetan, you know, and I had the idea you know, that you have to know something and really mas be master of it before you could actually teach it. Um, over the years, I've changed my mind a bit. Uh, for one thing, Anam Tupson Rinpoche told me about teaching the Dharma, and I, I had all these reasons why I can't do that uh, either. And, and he told me there are no rules about who can help. And so, um, well, then I want to help. So, so partly... Um, I see what I'm doing as uh, my, as a, you know, just kind of simple, ordinary guy, but I'm trying to help serve the Dharma because I think that's the most beautiful and precious uh, thing in the world, these, this, these spiritual teachings and the way they're articulated by the Tibetans. And of course, then they're written within these tens of thousands of books in this beautiful language. And so, um, so I started off with the idea, probably more selfish, then it became later to just, I'll learn Tibetan better if I teach people and it'll well, help some people, but I'll learn Tibetan better. And so, um, it has also to do with, um, so my approach also has to do with the fact that 
I subscribe to the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist teaching that we all have an enlightened, infinite, beautiful nature, and that we're infinitely wise and loving and skillful and capable in our true nature, and we just need to access that. And so for me personally, there's something, there's a very, very close connection between that enlightened nature and language. Uh, all the languages of the world and language is beautiful and inspiring. And then the Tibetans crafted this language, the classical Tibetan language. My son and I were just at the farmer's market last weekend and, and we both have studied Greek and love the Greek culture. And we met a Greek family uh, selling baklava and whatnot. And we started talking to them a little bit about language and about Greek. And the young woman that, that was uh, manning the booth said that, um, um, that they, Greek people, then they just moved to Montana from Athens quite recently. And she said, well, we all speak Greek, you know, modern Greek, and we can sound out the ancient Greek text, but we can't read them. So in Tibetan, we have the same thing, the two languages, the classical literary language, which you could call Dharma Tibetan, and then the, then the colloquial spoken language. Well, the classical language was crafted, it was created by the brilliant Tibetan masters in order to convey the Buddhist teachings in their own language at the time. Uh, so this is happening back in the seventh century, so in the 600s of our era. Um, so the so I guess what I'm saying is that for me it's a dharma it's a spiritual enterprise, and then once I began doing it, then I got a lot of encouragement from uh, Rinpoches and lamas, Tibetans, and they really um, are happy about what I was trying to do. I always felt like really inferior, and you know, I you know, like you should be teaching this, but then I realized um, after a while that I was kind of in a unique position to uh, teach Tibetan because I knew English and I knew a bit of Tibetan and I like to study. And also something important about it that connected with me personally um, is the fact that that classical literary language that they created, it was built on the fundamental stock or foundation, you could say, of um, a Sino-Tibetan language. So spoken Tibetan, it's, it's part of that family and Sino for the people that don't know that just refers to Chinese. So then sometimes we use the word, and I might use the word today, Sinitic. It just means basically chinese -y, like the Chinese language. Um, so Tibetan, the, this classical Tibetan language then, starting with that foundation of a Sino-Tibetan language, then they imported many, many ideas and concepts about language itself. And of course, the Dharma from the Sanskrit language of India. So that's an Indo-European language. So it's of the same family that the Greek and Latin and English is. And so Tibetan has both of these elements that came together to create this beautiful classical literary Buddhist Tibetan language. And so I have a bit of a background, as you mentioned, in Greek and Latin and a tiny exposure to Sanskrit. Um, and so um, when I began to study the grammar, that there was something that was familiar and exciting there to me about that. And then I also studied Chinese and Chinese culture and Chinese Buddhism um, 
for a year as well. So I had a little bit of background in both of those elements that I saw came together. So the Tibetan word for um, mind stream or tantra is gyu. And before it meant that in Tibetan, it meant confluence, like the flowing together of two rivers. So classical literary Tibetan is the flowing together of those two rivers, the, the spoken Tibetan with the classical literary Sanskrit. And, and something very beautiful came up out of that hybrid. And then I like to say that it was highly realized that great scholars, they, they weren't just like brilliant scholars, they were highly realized individuals working with the great masters from India. Um, together, they created this language and then began to translate the tens of thousands of texts from Sanskrit to Tibetan. And then the Tibetans began to um, um, write their own texts and their own commentaries on those texts of thing, of course. And then that continued that literary Dharma tradition from the 600s all the way up until the uh, current time. Anyway, that's just contextualizing it a little bit and then showing how kind of, I had some kind of connection with it, I think, because of that. And then when I had the great good fortune to do the three-year retreat, I, I was in love with that experience and I love the Dharma and I found it so beautiful. And I've always been the kind of person that when I found something interesting, I wanted to tell other people about it. You know, like, this is really great. And I used to tell lots and lots of people where, when I traveled um, about Montana. Now so many people are moving to Montana and it's becoming so gentrified and modernized that I've kind of had second thoughts about that. But uh, anyway, I, I, I get enthusiastic about things and um, I have a love of life and a, a you know, mostly happy, joyous orientation about life in general. And then this seems to light up um, studying the language and studying the teachings in this way. Um, well, one of my students one time said that after she learned Tibetan, now her texts are luminous and there's, she's onto something there, you know, it's really, you know, so they're, they're using this language to convey the most important and beautiful message in the world that that's liberating us, you know, from the confines of our dissatisfaction, you know, the, those are self-imposed and it's just uh, magical and wonderful and beautiful. And then it's so subtle and how they do it. Like almost everyone would find the Taj Mahal beautiful, right? You just look at pictures of it. I've never been there actually, but I used to have a picture in college of it on my way. It's just like so beautiful. And you're kind of awed and inspired and enthused by that. And if you saw that one time traveling in India and then you were traveling again with a friend, oh, I have to take you there. It's just so beautiful. And so it's something, some of that spirit that got me into it. And then I was listening to a yoga teacher speak recently, and I love what she said. And um, she was being interviewed. And some of the things she said was, well, and just to put it in my own words, we're talking about service here. She was serving the masters I'm serving the lineage, so like in her case, serving yoga, in my case, serving the Dharma, but then serving people as well, serving the students too. And that's how I, I, I feel blessed to be in that position. I'm really happy about it because the students tell me it's so meaningful and, and they enjoy it so much and like it so much. So it's coming out of kind of an, an enthusiasm uh, for me rather than a you know, having studied how to teach language and then analyzed 
how we, you know, rather than an analytical mode of a, or analytical approach, it's come from more of an enthusiasm uh, approach on my part. And then I just keep studying the grammar and the language. And then I get to read beautiful texts with my students, uh, Shanti Deva, Patro Rinpoche, um, Dujum Lingpa, um, you know, um, translation, the Tibetan translations of, uh, you know, the great texts from India, like uh, Vasubandhu and uh, things like that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, I'm getting a little excited about it here this morning. <clears throat> but it came out of that. And, 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 and when I arrived in LA and decided that I was going to teach, um, Diana had enrolled herself in grad school. So she was quite busy and engaged. And then what am I going to do? I just, I don't know why, but I just decided to go with as an experiment, that idea to teach Tibetan. So I contacted a local Dharma center and said, this is who I am. And how about if I teach just a real simple for everybody approach to just the very beginnings of the Tibetan alphabet, you know, and just begin like that. And they put a notice in their little newsletter at the time. It was a typed and mailed by the post. Um, newsletter and before the class started people started calling me on the phone saying i don't want to wait three weeks can we start now so there's been enthusiasm and it's just a tiny number of people you know when i go to a dharma teaching i think it's just one percent of people get the idea of maybe they could learn tibetan and um and then if they happen to connect with me so it's a, we're a small group and it's very much a niche that i've uh, fallen into but then um it's just wonderful, wonderfully rewarding to see how it helps people. And, and uh, I, I think that's a natural hum, human impulse, but you know, just part of our, our nature is we want to help, we want to serve. And, and, um, and then I get to, um, I'm blessed with being able to, to um, serve people in this Dharma way where we're working and talking about the mind and, and, we have a world with a great many problems, and we always have. And both the cause of the problems and the solution of the problem is on the level of mind, I believe. And so I, I don't, I'm not very active politically, you know, but I'm, I'm active, I think, on, on the level of mind. And that's what, um, that's what in, in, inspires me. You mentioned the grammar. Of course, beyond the reading of the uh, writing system, uh, being able to, as you say, sound out uh, the written uh, text. The next, it seems, uh, one of the next uh, mountains to climb or to begin to climb is the grammar, as, as with, with most languages, grammar and vocabulary seems to be what comes next. So I'm curious, uh, when it comes to Tibetan, it's sometimes said, and perhaps you can correct me if, if I'm wrong here, that the Tibetan explanation of their grammar, the sort of grammar that one would learn, say, if one was learning, the, as you call classical Tibetan, in a Tibetan context, as a Tibetan, let's say, has its own sort of grammar system, which has some uh, ways of categorizing uh, the connective particles and so on, um, and ways of um, categorizing the different tenses. That doesn't quite map onto uh, the sort of grammar one would uh, expect to see, say, coming from uh, a Latin grammar. Oh, that sort of uh, grammar background. And sometimes I've heard it said that one has to decide a little bit, at least at the beginning, which grammar to teach from, which grammar to learn. Do we learn it 
so to say, the Tibetan way, and there are some Tibetan grammar treatises that still survive, not all of them, but some of them still surviving, and one can study that way, mm -hmm. uh, sort of Shedra style, or uh, does one attempt to learn uh, through the more Latin style uh, grammar with the understanding that there's going to be not always exactly a perfect overlap, or is there some sort of hybrid? You know, what's your uh, philosophy, I suppose, when you begin to approach Tibetan grammar with a student? So two things come to mind there. One, um, Noam Chomsky points out that he said it something like this, I think, um, that um, he made this point in this way, that if a Martian came to planet Earth and traveled all around and listened to all the different languages and read all the different languages, the Martian would think that that was one language, just with different dialects. So any two languages, probably, I, I mean, I can't, I should phrase that a little bit differently. Tibetan, so basically languages are doing, all the languages probably of the world are doing the same thing, um, but they're doing it in different ways. And then, so Tibetan, you can look at Tibetan and um, notice the differences or you can look at Tibetan and notice the similarities. So I used to play baseball and um, I pitched and I wasn't a really great hitter. I'm not a big, powerful guy, so I couldn't hit a lot of home runs. You know, that didn't, that didn't happen much. And one of the things I learned about batting in baseball is you try to hit the ball where the outfielders on the other team, where they aren't. And, and then you run the bases. Um, and so, so there's a little saying, hit them where they ain't, is a, like an American baseball saying that I learned you know, way back in the 50s. And um, so my approach to teaching language is exactly the opposite, hit them where they are. So I, a Tibetan Lama one time said that he came to America and lived in America, and this is a highly erudite guy, learned English, speaks English really well. And he said, I taught for 20 years sitting on the throne, just looking at my text and teaching the text what was there. And I never looked at the people and I never connected with them or I never thought about you know, them. So, and then he said, then one day it occurred to me that I should teach the people and see who they are and how they think and where they are and then bring the message to them. So that's been my approach with Tibetan all along is that, um, yes, it's foreign, it's strange and there's lots of things that are different about it, but then there's all these things that are common as well. So let's start with the common and build a bridge there and, and, um, and then we have a connection going, and then we can build on that, and then later on get to the more um, esoteric and different parts, perhaps. But um, so if we start really simply, and I've had some experience teaching um, eight-year-old kids. For some reason, a number of eight-year-olds have come to me. And um, so eight-year-olds, they don't have the idea of this is like weird and strange, and I don't think I'll ever be able to do this. Adults have that idea, and so that's something that I work with to lower that barrier on their part. And then the kids just learn it, and they sometimes know a little bit about the Dharma, but sometimes nothing, and they've never studied another foreign language. Um, and then one boy was nine, and, and then these kids just take to it. 
so that's for me evidence that language and we we all learned one and there isn't you know chomsky points out also that there isn't some band of people somewhere tucked away in northeastern montana or 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 somewhere deep in the jungle that did that don't do language like there isn't anyone that that doesn't do language any people anywhere unless a person is born with serious uh problems if, if they're if they're normal healthy person every person throughout all time as long as we've had human language and in every place they all learn language so it's something that's natural to our mind i would suggest and uh, and so learning a different one if someone is patient and and simplifies it and just starts at the beginning and then also goes slowly and then so we so we both want to present things in a slow and gentle manner but then thoroughly and, and explain them thoroughly and completely and if you leave part of the explanation out then people aren't understanding and it's not working and so i found with a lot of the grammar books part of the explanations left out and assumptions are made and so i try to eliminate the assumptions and then be complete so our level one book that just teaches the reading of the script in the new edition i think it's 132 pages and i know some people that in some books they do that in 10 pages and so we try to be slow and complete and thorough in that way and also because i believe that it is a sacred and a dharma activity the study of the classical tibetan i encourage the people to approach the study in the same way that they approach the spiritual practice so it's not other than the spiritual practice it's just it's an it's a different one but it's also a spiritual practice you know of all the different things that we could do i know <clears throat> um you've interviewed uh robert beer i would suggest that painting robert's painting that's an authentic infinitely profound and beautiful spiritual path and language is is another i think and so so i encourage people then well to approach it in that way and one of the great masters one time told me i said to him <clears throat> i've been teaching tibetan for three years now and um i it's really helping people with their dharma practice and he said no <clears throat> and i was kind of surprised when he said no that's not too hard to understand like no he just said no and actually he had one of our great translators was translating for him interpreting for him in this conversation and uh but I could understand it's Mare in Tibetan, you know, no, it's just not that. And, and so then I said it in a different way, because I thought maybe I said it, you know, unskillfully. And then you said no again. And so then the third time I said, okay, what, what do you mean, you know, rather than, than um, trying to make my point. And he said, studying Tibetan is practicing the Dharma. And at the time, I thought, that's cool. You know, I'll tell my students that you know that and then quote this authority and so now 25 years later 24 years later i just more and more recognize the truth of that that this is of our buddha nature learning is of our buddha nature the dharma is of our buddha nature language is the vehicle for expressing that learning language is natural to us just as natural as walking you know so the um uh, it's kind of in that spirit, with, combined with that enthusiasm and joy. And I'm, you know, like 
to my students from when I first taught I traveled all around LA I had this little car and and drove to people's offices and their homes and their yoga studios and massage studios and just all kinds of different people and so I'd be sitting across the table from people and I'm looking at them in the eye and I see that light in their eye and they have Buddha nature so they can do this even if they've never learned a language or they'll tell me they're bad at language and many people used to tell me they're dyslexic and so I would say oh that's good because Tibetan works backwards from English they put the verb at the end so this you've got an advantage there and then they would be like slightly confused for a moment oh I had a reason why I can't do this and you just took it away but um those are some of the things <laughs> that that come to mind so, so so my approach basically is is uh and I totally believe in joyous uh, effort. And so this is a joyous, beautiful and wonderful thing that we have here. Let me show it to you. <clears throat> and so some people have the idea, well, I can't look at it really, you know, because I don't do languages or, you know, or I'm too old or this, that and the other thing. So for me, <clears throat> it's just like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's just like showing uh, someone a jewel, maybe a many faceted jewel and look at this, you know, and just turn it and show different sides to it. And then, and then most people go, oh, yeah, wow. And so something like that is my, my approach or um, philosophy. <laughs> We've talked a bit about the way you teach beginners, a thorough, almost a devotional and enthusiastic kind of uh, discovery style approach at learning the, the uh, grammar, at learning the script and so on and so forth. And how do you approach the intermediate level of learning? Let's say somebody has a reasonable grasp, functional grasp of the grammar and uh, beginning to develop something of a, of a vocabulary can translate reasonably well, simpler text, etc. How do you approach an intermediate level learner at that point? Well, one thing for me is we never, so uh, let's see. Um, so language has these three parts. There's phonology, the sound, the pronunciation, then there's syntax. And so that's basically the rules of grammar, how words are put together. For instance, in, in Greek and Sanskrit and Tibetan, they put the verb at the end of a sentence in German. Um, so that's syntax, the rules or the grammar of how the language works. And then there's this aspect, the semantics, the meaning, what's the meaning of the text. So almost all the people that study with me are on the spiritual path and on some Tibetan Buddhist or Bun uh, path. And so um, from the beginning, I, I like to weave together. So we don't put too much emphasis on phonology. So it doesn't matter to me if a person says either or either, you know, we can get down to business and talk, talk Dharma. Um, so I teach them the basics on that of, of reading, of spelling and the fundamentals of grammar and such things as use of the dictionary and then the Wiley transliteration system. That's all part of the fundamental level and the first level of grammar. But then we never really want to start stop studying the vocabulary and the grammar. So we continue to do that. So then on the intermediate level, then things, then the Dharma um, aspect or the semantic aspect then comes, it's almost like the 
it illumines more, it, it shines, it comes forth more. And so what we do then is study an, an important text, a fundamental text. And so for years, when I first began teaching and I was in dialogue with Sarah Harding and she said that if I got people up to a certain intermediate level, that she would come and teach a seminar on the Heart Sutra. And that was exactly what I wanted to do. So I worked for a year and then we had 20 people and we did the Heart Sutra. And so, so that's what I like to do then. Once, the, once they have a pretty much like you described, then now let's go to a sacred profound text like the Heart Sutra. And, and then we go into the Heart Sutra and then the three things come together continued study of vocab, always learning more words, and then nuances on the words that we already know, right? Just like in English. I like to tell people when I first got a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary, I opened it at random, very excited, and it opened up to the word run, R-U-N, and there were seven and a half pages on the word run. So I walk around the neighborhood studying Tibetan flashcards, <laughs> I have them here with a Tibetan on one side and then the English on the other. And, um, and people say, well, I thought you knew Tibetan. Why are you still studying Tibetan? And for me, it's an infinite voyage of discovery. There's always more to learn. But then on that intermediate level, so we're learning more words. We're learning more about the words and seeing how they're used in a different context. Because when you have a text like a Mahayana text, like the Heart Sutra, a particular word might have you know one meaning and resonance here in this context but then if you switch context to say a tantric text or a, a liturgy a sadhana practice text then it might have slightly it's going to be related but slightly different meanings so we always want to learn more about the vocabulary and continue with that one time i looked up the word dun in eric pema kunsang's rangjung yeshe dictionary and the first syllable um, words that had done as the first syllable, there were a thousand entries. And then I put in, well, well, let's search done as it occurs in the definition and any place, and there were 10,000 entries. So that's just one, three little letters, you know, the, basically the Tibetan D-O-N that would be pronounced done. Um, so that's an infinite, for me, journey, and I'm learning every day new words. I love learning new English words and um, okay, so that's that's so then then when we read the text, um, then we're going to learn more about the grammar too, because there's certain straightforward sentences and statements like form is emptiness that's not complex grammatically. Um, but then of course there are other writings and someone like uh, say Dujum Lingpa or Pacho Rinpoche, there's sophistication and beauty. Tibetan has their Shakespeare's and Milton's and <clears throat> and the way that they write is very sophisticated and beautiful so that so then we have to study the grammar more in order to get that and I think in the process it's taking us deeper and deeper into a study of the Dharma and into the study of mind and our own mind so the short answer to that is um, <clears throat> I wanted to say two things then we start reading an authentic text like that at the beginning level but also <clears throat> then beyond what I've written, then there are two really important grammar works that we have in English now that are aimed at um, modern people that are interested in Buddhism, 
and want to learn the language. So they're, they're not um, like the other ones from the 19th century I was describing. And, you know, Joe, uh, in the very beginning, uh, Joe B. Wilson, um, I, I just call him JBW. Uh, I abbreviate that in my notes all the time. So his book, um, Translating Buddhism from Tibetan, then I'll take these medium students, we go into studying that that grammar book, or John Rockwell's book, A Primer for Classical Literary Tibetan, then I take them into that. And we can spend a year. Um, so now two of my students are now part of the Nalanda Translation Committee. So they began studying with me, and now they, they're both probably beyond me uh, significantly. But um, but that's what we do with people like that, you know. So. So my friend Pamela had a master's in Sanskrit and knew language and languages and grammar really well and knew the Dharma really well. And then so she went through that beginning level of my materials really quickly. And, and so then that's what we did. We went through the Rockwell course for like maybe a year, the grammar, and that's a Dharma-based course. And, and so then, then when a person's done that, and then we start going into the text, then it's very, very rich. And also I see a lot of my work, I should say, a lot of my work, I'm like a high school teacher. And so I like to think that I'm preparing these students to go on and study with the masters, like some of them do, study with the Tibetan scholars, study with the people like Wilson and Bill McGee and Craig Preston um, <clears throat> that are really masters of the language and are great teachers as well to study with them. So I see I'm kind of like in the, in the, um, like a relay race, you know, I wanna connect them from the absolute beginning chunk and, and have them have a solid foundation, you know, that's really strong and clear foundation. And, and then when they have the opportunity to study one of these grammar books, if they have the opportunity and time to spend a year doing that, or connect with one of the teachers with whom they can learn, then then they can really progress and, and go beyond. And some of my, a couple of my um, people that started off with me uh, um, have now become significant translators. Uh, uh, Vanessa Turner, for instance, is uh, one of the great translators that we have now, just unbelievable master of the language. And I just taught her the very, very beginning, but, um, then when, when she went to college, then she was able to study with Alan Wallace and Jose Cabazon at um, University of California, Santa Barbara. And she just is a transcendent um, scholar and practitioner. So she's like the ideal one, but, but then lots of people have gone on. And then once, so very often their, their Lama has a modicum of English. And then once they have this basic foundation of a modicum of Tibetan, then they can start working with the Lama in a whole different way, uh, privately, and uh, they can work with their texts in a whole different way, and, and things start to illuminate that that uh, couldn't happen before just in English, I don't think. For instance, Tibetan has um, an, an ordinary vocabulary, and then you could say a sacred or an honorific vocabulary, and so Sometimes in, in doing a particular sadhana practice, like a deity yoga practice, the deity is described in a certain way and then um, with certain vocabulary and we're described with 
in a certain way, but then at a certain point, then one becomes the deity. Maybe light comes from the deity and transforms one, and transforms one's body, speech, and mind. So previously, those had been referred to, and this isn't explicit, it's kind of implicit and hidden, but they just use the ordinary word for like my body, speech, and mind. But then when I become the deity, then it becomes the, and then it just says body, speech, and mind again, but there are three different words, the sacred honorific words, because I'm no longer the ordinary guy, person, I've become the deity. So these subtle things into the text are, are beautiful. But once with that modicum, then they can on their own start discovering these things. But then when they work with the teacher, they have enough Tibetan and, 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 and we learn some of the vocabulary vocabulary of Tibetan grammar. So when they're talking to the Lama, like if we say genitive particle or something to a Lama, they might not know what that is, you know, but there's a Tibetan term for that, you know, is this drill draw, you know, what's happening here, you know, then, yeah, then it, it can become a much more rich experience for the student, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, amazing. Very fascinating. Thank you for sharing all these, uh, all this information. I'm curious, I guess my last question, you've taught in your with your institute, um, I believe thousands of students, we, we said, when we last talked about this, very impressive, and you've produced, you know, so much material. I'm wondering, you know, there are many routes, I suppose, if one was curious to uh, learn about the Tibetan language, many routes, academic route, uh, private route, uh, autodidactic route, who is your ideal student? What is your ideal student profile? I, I understand people come to you with all sorts of different motivations. What are the, maybe it's a, two or three profiles, but what are the ideal student profiles, the sorts of people whose interests and uh, proclivities and maybe even personalities match best with what you do at the Institute? Well, I think the first thing is the, um, you know, um, I had the great good fortune to be trained in the system of uh, Kala Rinpoche, who lived from 1904, 1905 until 1989. And um, it was his dream, and it didn't come about until very late in his life, to have a translation committee. And, um, and so uh, I was in retreat when that formed and that got going by people that had been in the same retreat as me previously. And so I longed to be with them in India translating and studying. Um, but there were two qualifications. And so I thought, well, maybe you have to know, you know, Tibetan at a really high level and then know a couple of other languages and maybe this and maybe that and it was just my own ideas about it. And the two qualifications were the person had to have done a three-year retreat, number one, and number two, they had to have compassion. <laughs> like, well, what? What kind of qualifications are those for a translation committee, you know? Well, of course, I understand. But um, so for me, um, I think um, if the person, um, so you, so they um, have an interest in the Dharma. They're, they're excited about the Dharma. Basically, they love the Dharma and they love um, learning. They're open-minded and want to learn and have enthusiasm. That's, that's 
pretty much it. The pe then, then there's a slightly different profile of, of the people that really succeed. Most of the people that succeed, they know how to study already. Some people I'm teaching them how to study. And then other people are much better scholars and studiers than I am. But if, but if they know how to study already, so they've had some college say, or, um, and then if people have had some, if they've learned any other language um, academically, uh, if they grew up in a family where two languages were spoken, that's not quite the same thing. But if a person learned a language academically, you know, a second language, then and if, and it doesn't matter what it is, could be any language in the world, then it's as if the translator Richard Barron one time said they have the language channel open in their mind already. And so they go, oh. And so we want to ask the question, like some people, like Edward Conzi, when he came from Germany to live in England during World War II, which was a difficult thing for a German person to do, no doubt, um, had to support himself and he um, had a PhD and whatnot, but um, um, I guess he couldn't quite break into the system. But so anyway, he wound up teaching ordinary people French. And one time a, uh, a guy um, who's an uneducated person in, in his French class was completely frustrated and, and said to um, said to Conzi, the teacher, why do the French people call a cabbage a shoe? Why don't they call a shoe a shoe and a cabbage a cabbage, you know? <laughs> so this person, you know, um, would be a work in progress, you know, to, to teach that person language and have to start back. Uh, but, but the point I wanted to make is if we have the curiosity about how do they do it, you know, like you were talking about the, like the connective particles, like we do it this way, how do they do it? You know, how do they express, you know, um, like the Lama's students, you know, how do they do that? So we have like an open-minded curiosity like that. Um, that's a really good quality for language uh, learning. And then I teach people to, um, as I mentioned before, to approach it as if they were gonna do a meditation practice. So when you do a meditation practice, you usually have some kind of sacred space, maybe a little shrine. You maybe the same use the same cushion or whatever. So you have your space. Most people, whether it's a little place in the closet or a corner of a room or whatever it is, um, so you want the same thing than when you study Tibetan. And then the same kind of attitude, like why are we approaching this? Oh, how about the altruistic, spiritual altruistic attitude? that's called uh, bodhicitta, you know? So I'm gonna learn this for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit of myself and the benefit of all beings. And may my learning this serve people and, you know, serve the suffering people of the world somehow and bring them to the Dharma and bring them to enlightenment. So orientation like that. And I teach people, if you're, if you're um, practicing like reciting the spelling of a word, then use the mala, the prayer beads and, uh, and completely integrate all that you've learned about study and practice of the Dharma into your study and practice of Tibetan. That's very interesting. Thank you, uh, mm -hmm. David. And so the new website is launched probably by the time this comes out. I think the new website will be launched, tibetanlanguage.org. Congratulations on that. And congratulations on the revamping of all your materials. And mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much. Yep, you're very welcome. And I hope uh, I hope people will come check us out and and see what we're about via the website. And I, I give lectures every quarter. There are free lectures. Just 
introducing people to the language. And then many people, they listen to that lecture and go, oh, I can do that with this guy. I can do that. <laughs> so thanks very much for having me, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.